Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to you all hearts are open, to you every desire is known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, I imagine some of us smiled just a little bit when we heard the story of Samuel and Eli in the tabernacle. For some of us, it takes us back to Sunday school decades ago. The story is a much-loved staple of children's Bible storybooks, vacation Bible school classes, and of course, my favorite, flannel graph. If I close my eyes, I can still see Samuel sleeping on the floor of the tabernacle and the blind old Eli, his mentor, sound asleep. As a whole, this story is really not children's fare. This section we heard this morning is a G-rated account set in the middle of an R-rated story. The story of tawdry corruption sordid actions mostly on the part of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And then there is the feeble ineptitude of Eli himself. But in a Sunday school message, the story is usually told like this, or the moral of the story is told like this. Children, God loves to speak to little girls and boys. So late at night, pay attention. Listen for the voice of God, because he might be calling you. I have to confess that this gave me the heebie-jeebies. I spent a lot of sleepless nights huddling under the blankets, fearfully waiting for that disembodied voice to speak to me. Frankly, I wasn't sure I really wanted God to speak to me. The prospect scared me to death. But today's gospel story offers us another fearful story of a divine call, the story of Nathanael and the call of Jesus. Now, at first glance, it doesn't sound all that fearful. Philip, having just met Jesus, runs to his friend Nathanael to share the good news. I have just met the promised one, told about by Moses and the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth is the Messiah of God. And Nathaniel can't even mask his cynicism. Oh, come on. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is like the response of a U of M alumnus saying, oh, right, as if MSU could produce a good basketball player. Maybe Nathaniel's alma mater had faced off with Nazareth U in the playoffs. But more directly, there was Clear, there was no clear scriptural reference that Nathaniel could think of that anything would come out of this backwater town of Nazareth. Nazareth had a seedy reputation. She was low class, a scruffy little border town that cooperated just a little too closely with the Gentile neighbors. The people were worldly not very good Jews. This does not sound like a good candidate 
for the hometown of the Messiah. But Philip simply responds to Nathanael's cynicism by saying, well, come and see for yourself. So off they go, Philip hoping to introduce Nathanael to Jesus. But Jesus, surprisingly, introduces Nathanael. Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus knows Nathanael before Nathanael knows Jesus. A true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Itself a statement that's full of irony, because if you recall the name Israel was first given to a man who had raised guile and deceit to an art form. Jacob, who had deceived his own father, cheated his brother twice, and lived his life wheeling and dealing in order to get God's blessing. Nathaniel, on the other hand, is described as an Israelite incapable of deceit. Not the sort of man you want as a poker partner, but clearly the sort of person that Jesus wants to follow him. Jesus' public revelation of Nathaniel's character puts him on the defensive. This man is acting as if he knows something about Nathaniel's moral fiber, intimate knowledge that only a close friend would know. And so Nathaniel asks, how do you know anything about me? And Jesus' reply sends chills up your spine. I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Yikes. The psalmist describes it in this way. O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my lips, O Lord, you know it completely. Such knowledge is too astonishing for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. This psalm, which is in, intended in part to be a source of comfort for God's people, also creates some apprehension. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. But that's not exactly assuring for most of us. Among the highest values that we revere as Americans is our privacy. We sign on line to Facebook in the illusion of the privacy of our own homes, and we reveal for the world just who we really are. And then we get incensed when somebody intrudes into our privacy, pretending to know us intimately. Yet the God we meet in Scripture claims to know the very secrets of our hearts, to know our thoughts before we speak them, to know the motivations and our character. We've, too, we've often heard the prayer from the Book of Common Prayer in which we celebrate God before whom all hearts are open, to whom every desire is known, and from whom no secrets are hid. 
And if that doesn't leave you just a little bit uneasy, then maybe you're not paying attention. God has intruded into our lives. Nathaniel's privacy has been invaded by Jesus, who claims to know something that only God could know, which should come as no surprise to the reader of John's Gospel. For in the first half of this very chapter, Jesus is described as the, the inhuman flesh God who was from the very beginning, the divine word. And Nathaniel catches on very quickly. At this revelation of knowledge from Jesus, he cries out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the true King of Israel. And when he makes this confession, Jesus says, just wait. You'll see far more than this. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Nathaniel saw with clarity who Jesus is because Jesus saw with clarity who Nathaniel is. And Nathaniel is rewarded with even more insight. The one who stands before you is the very hope of Israel, the flesh and blood fulfillment of Jacob's dream, a bridge between heaven and earth, between God and humanity. Ultimately, this is not a story about Nathaniel's insight or his wisdom in finding Jesus. It's a story about Jesus already knowing Nathaniel and making himself known to him. Jesus reveals a pre-existing bond between himself as the divine son and those who would be his children, which will be finally unveiled in the cross where heaven and earth are reconciled in Christ's body. As Jesus himself would say, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And whether this idea of God's knowledge is a source of fear or a source of comfort depends entirely upon perspective. Do we really want to do business with a God who has searched us and has known us through and through, inside and out? Or do we really prefer a mildly forgetful, slightly senile, heavenly grandfather who brings us gifts but can't remember what a brat we were the last time he visited? This time of year is a difficult time to preach. The wonder of Christmas and Epiphany are behind us. The mystery and joy of Lent and Easter are still ahead. Like that long, long green season of summer and fall, the church says that we are again back in ordinary time. That season which one friend likes to say, Nothing special is happening. 1 Samuel 3 begins with this disheartening line that sets the tone. Now the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not very common. That sounds like ordinary time to me. Nothing special is happening. God is not talking. Business as usual. But that perception 
can be deceptive. Because the God of the scriptures takes personal delight in showing up in ordinary times and places, like under Nathaniel's fig tree or beside Samuel's bed. Samuel works as an apprentice in the tabernacle of the Lord, day in and day out. And yet it is an ordinary routine. The text says he does not yet know the Lord. He's unaware of God's constant presence with him, which may be exactly why he can sleep so soundly. Eli, the priest, has settled into an ineffectual, milquetoast existence of just going through the motions. The text adds the tragic truth that his eyesight had grown so dim that he could no longer see. This is a situation where nobody expects God to show up, not even in the tabernacle. But then the scriptures add an optimistic word. But the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. The high priest might be blind. The prophets might be silent. But the lamp of the Lord has not yet gone out. Eli and Samuel may be asleep, but the Lord their God is not. His light still shines in the darkness. In a wonderful bit of Jewish comedy, Samuel so little expects God to appear that when he does, it takes the boy four times to figure it out. In the silence of the tabernacle, sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Presence of God, in the flickering light of the menorah created centuries ago by Moses' command, Samuel lies asleep, and the voice of the Lord cries out, Samuel, Samuel. If you remember, the name Samuel means God has heard. Remember the story of Samuel's mother, Hannah, who endured the painful indignity of being childless, faithfully praying to the Lord for an heir. And when God intervened and gave her a son, she named the boy Samuel. God has heard. And she dedicated this boy to service in the tabernacle. Hannah poured out her soul to God at a time when no one else in Israel seemed to be paying attention. And she was assured that God was listening. And so as Samuel is awakened at the sound of his name in the tabernacle, he responds, I am here. And he swiftly runs to Eli, saying, Did you call me? Eli groggily rolls over and says, No, I didn't. Now go back to bed. Then it happens a second time. Samuel, Samuel. And the boy again wakes the priest, who sends him marching back to bed, perhaps this time with a glass of warm milk. Then a third time, this ritual is repeated. God says, Samuel, I have heard. And the boy rushes to the priest. And Eli has a moment of insight. Strange as it may seem, perhaps it is God who's calling out to Samuel. 
And Eli makes this suggestion to the boy and then sends him back to encounter the God who hears. What surprises me about this story is the response or the lack of response from Eli, the priest. He's just considered the possibility, the rare and strange possibility, that God, who has seemed absent for so long, might actually be present in the tabernacle, visiting his people. And instead of jumping up to experience this wonder for himself, the priest decides that he needs his beauty sleep. He simply points the boy in the right direction and is done with it. Ordinary ordinary times tend to dull our senses to the God who is always present and pursuing his will, who is always hearing and paying attention, even when his people are not. Eli reminds me of the flawed and all-too-human whiskey priest in Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory, who, despite his defects, is still a priest, a person through whom God continues to work. Do you see the grace in that fact? God working in spite of us and through us. At first, unaware and unlistening, Eli and Samuel act as if nothing special is happening. Indeed, nothing special is expected. But after some patient prompting, they finally accept the fearful and wonderful reality that God is truly present and is speaking. And so it is the disgraced priest Eli who introduces Samuel to God. When when the Lord finally appears beside Samuel, calling out his name, now the boy is prepared for a new reality. He answers back, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God has been paying attention all along, and now so is Samuel. Like Nathaniel, who will come after him, Samuel takes the first step toward the God who has already moved toward him, who has searched him and known him, who has invaded his privacy, who has hemmed him in behind and before. Last week I caught on TV part of the Disney movie Freaky Friday, where an alienated mother and daughter magically exchange bodies and lives. And for a day... They begin to see the world through someone else's eyes, and they come to know and understand each other better. Another perennial favorite is Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd's Trading Places, in which a millionaire and a homeless person switch lives and come to understand one another more deeply. I think we're attracted to these kind of movies because deep down, we appreciate that old bit of wisdom. You never fully know someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. It's to that principle that the message of the season of Epiphany appears, where Jesus is being unveiled as the one who is walking many miles in our shoes, 
The gospel speaks to our deepest desire for someone to know us fully, understand us deeply, and still love us. That is the great lesson of this season, that God isn't absent just because we feel like he's absent. God isn't silent just because for the moment we can't hear him. The unfolding message of this season is that the word has become flesh to dwell among us. And even in the, even in the routine and ordinary places, God is there. We know God, and more importantly, God knows us in Jesus Christ because he is the bridge between heaven and earth. God not only knows us out of his sovereignty, as the psalmist says, God knows us because he has walked miles in our shoes. And the path that he walked in Jesus Christ is a path that leads to the cross. Jesus assures us that God has searched us and knows us that he has heard us, and he loves us. And now he invites us to respond. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.